Hi, welcome to my Parsha Shir. Today we are going to focus on Parsha's Chaye Sora. Parsha's Chaye Sora opens with a posuk that describes Sora Imenu's lifespan in a very peculiar manner. Sora's lifetime was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, the years of Sarah's life. Rashi offers an insight into the curious repetition of the word years after each numeral, shana, shana, shonim, by explaining that it signifies the distinct significance of each period of Sarah's life. At 100 years old, Sarah was as sinless as she had been at the age of 20, which means that since a 20-year-old is not yet held accountable for their sins in terms of divine retribution, which means she was considered sin-free, nothing had changed 80 years later when she turned 100. She was still sin-free, and her beauty at 20 years old was as pure and as natural as that of a 7-year-old, untouched by any kind of vanity or self-awareness. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? But it raises an intriguing point. Let's face it, a 20-year-old woman typically embodies a more pronounced form of beauty, feminine beauty, attractiveness, than a 7-year-old child. And another thing, isn't it just a bit curious that the Torah emphasizes Sarah's beauty when the Posik in Mishle reminds us that beauty is not the ultimate measure of praise, but rather Fear of God, Yiras Hashem. Shekachin vehevelayoyfe, isha Yiras Hashem, he tishalo. Perhaps the reason the Torah highlights Sarah's attractiveness is because of her role in drawing so many people into the fold of monotheism. She got people to believe in one creator God, and in order to get them through the door, as it were, she needed to be attractive. Sarah's physical beauty served as an initial means of attracting potentials to her spiritual teachings. Although, while this is certainly a compelling idea, it is not entirely satisfying. Even if Sarah was a very beautiful woman, why should her beauty be emphasized over her piety and righteousness? There is a passage in the Zohar related to this week's portion, this week's Parsha. It celebrates humility stating that those who are humble in this world will find joy in the next world. The passage cites the beginning verse of Chaye Sora as an example. The singular form of year, shana, is used for the larger numbers, and the plural, years, shanim, for the smallest number, seven, to symbolize the greatness found in humility. That's what the Zohar says. The Yeshua's Malkai offers another illuminating explanation. It is not the physical beauty of Sarah at 20 that the Medrash admires, but rather her attitude towards that beauty. Unlike the typical 20-year-old who may be conscious and even full of pride because of her beauty, Sarah carried her beauty with the innocence of a seven-year-old, completely oblivious to her physical charm. This perspective on beauty rooted in humility is what the Zohar is teaching us. True greatness comes from perceiving oneself as lesser, despite one's evident qualities or accomplishments. Great people, the greater they become, if they are humble, they become even more humble, because they become greater in their humility. 
It's an amazing thing. They don't think highly of themselves. I, I had this amazing story a couple of years ago. I was at a wedding in London. It was my nephew's wedding. Uh, when we sat down to dinner in the evening, you know what it's like in London. It, it's very formal. Every place at the table had a name card. I was seated next to my brother. His name is Zev. My name card said Pinny. His name card said Zev. Also seated at the table was Rabbi Lef from Matityahu in Israel. I was already sitting at the table. My brother hadn't yet sat down. Now, Rabbi Lef's name is also Zev. So he walks over to me, sitting at the table, and says, Shalom Aleichem, looks down at the seat setting next to, next to mine, sees the name Zev, and he immediately sits down next to me. It didn't occur to him that there might be another name card, which there was, with the name Rabbi Lef on it. His name is Zev, my name is Pinny. He was sitting next to me. It was as simple as that. He's a great man and his humility is also great. The greater you get, if you are humble, the greater your humility becomes. In essence, the greatness of our great people, as exemplified by Sarah, is not in their elevated status or even in their external attributes, but in their incredible modesty. Sarah's beauty at 20, marked by the innocence of a seven-year-old unawareness of her own beauty, teaches us the power and importance of humility. The Ramban, among many other commentators, sees a pattern of Mase Ovois Simon Lebonim, a profound multi-layered concept in all the narratives of Sefer Bereshis. These stories may resemble a collection of ancestral anecdotes, but in truth, they recall pivotal events that cast long shadows over the continuum of Jewish history, critically, these occurrences were not isolated to the lives of our patriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, but rather they laid down a path followed by their descendants, setting in motion echoes through time. Ma'aseh ovois simon lebonim. What transpired with the fathers is a sign for the sons. The lives of our forefathers are not just historical. They are the blueprints for the destiny of the Jewish people. For instance, Ramban highlights a conspicuous pattern, one that does not demand profound acumen or deep insight to discern. The journey of Avram to Egypt as a result of the famine in Canaan, the subsequent seizing of Sarai by Pharaoh, the divine retribution that fell upon Pharaoh, and the eventual exit of Avram and Sarai from Egypt, laden with bountiful wealth, exactly mirrors the experiences of Yaakov Avinu and his children, their descent into Egypt during famine and the subsequent exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt with abundant riches symbolizes the recurring motif, Maase Ovois Simon Lebonim. The experiences of the fathers are precursors to those of the sons. While some instances of Maase Ovois Simon Lebonim are starkly evident, like the one I just mentioned, others are shrouded in mystery. Some may only unravel retrospectively when the messianic redemption unfolds and history's grand design is finally revealed. Right now, though, I wish to delve into a particularly poignant example of this enduring principle. In Chayis Sorah, we are confronted with Avram Avinu's sorrow after he returned from the Akedah and heard the news of the passing of his beloved wife. 
Tasked with finding a sacred resting place for Sara Emenu, Avram Avinu's quest is seen by Chazal, according to some commentaries, specifically Rabbeinu Yoyna, as the culmination of his Asara Mamores, ten tests. But whether or not it was Avram's last trial, Chazal are full of praise for Avram's conduct during this tribulation. I want to examine two reflections from Chazal that honor Avram Avinu's actions. Firstly, the Gemara in Baba Basra, Daftezayin, Ahmed Aleph, portrays a conversation between Satan and God, highlighting Avraham's unwavering righteousness. Satan confesses his inability to find anyone as virtuous as Avraham, who, despite the divine promise of the land and the subsequent struggle to secure a burial plot for Sarah, he had to buy it, even though it was his, and yet he never once harbored any doubt about God. Similarly, there is a touching medrash in Shmois Rabbah, also echoed by Rashi at the outset of Parshas Vaira, which conveys a conversation between God and Moshe Rabbeinu. Faced with Moshe's lament over the suffering of his people, Hashem invokes the steadfast faith of the Ovois, the forefathers, who despite not being privy to the full revelation of the divine name, never questioned the Almighty amidst their tribulations. Both of these sources unanimously herald Abraham's acceptance of whatever came his way and his lack of contention, even when faced with purchasing a grave for his wife in a land promised to him and his descendants. The late Rav Isaac Bernstein of London, whose Parsha Shiurim were an inspiration for the London communities in the 1980s and 1990s, raises a probing question regarding the necessity of this purchase. When Avram Avinu approached the Bnei Ches, the Hittites, they offered him the choicest of burial sites, implying that no cost would be involved. Nevertheless, Avraham insisted on paying for it. Why refuse such an offer? They offered it to him for nothing. Why would you pay for it? Several reasons emerge. One reason, analogous to Avraham's encounter with the king of Sodom, is his aversion to accepting gifts so that no man could claim to have enriched him. Furthermore, Avram might have been mindful of the adage from Mishlei, he who despises gifts shall live, or perhaps he espoused the philosophy of the Briskarov, believing that the things that end, that cost the most, are those things that you received for free, for they entail the intangible debt of gratitude. But whatever the reason for Avram's refusal to take the burial plot for nothing, the offer was made. What then do these Gemaras and Medrashim aim to teach us by emphasizing Avraham's lack of complaint to God? Why would he complain? Why should he complain if he was the one who decided to pay for it? Rav Bernstein sheds light on this through the Pirke de Rebeleza, which expounds on these teachings of Chazal. One day, Avram was pursuing a, a runaway cow from the flock that was destined for his guests, and he stumbled upon the Ma'ara Samachbela, which was the resting place, the final resting place of Odom and Chava. Overwhelmed by the sanctity and the beauty of the site, he resolved that it would be the burial ground for him and his wife Sarah. And when the time came, Avraham declared his intent to purchase this hallowed land. 
It is here that we can observe the nuances of Avraham's trial. Because the Bnei Ches, the Hittites, offered him a different location, a desirable one at that. And nevertheless, Avraham's steadfast resolve was to secure this specific site, despite the evident hurdles. And this was a test in itself. As a result of Avraham Avinu's resilience and unwavering faith, namely his refusal to accept less than what was divinely shown to him, he taught a crucial lesson to future generations. It is a lesson about the worth of what is earned, the significance of legacy and the importance of preparation for the end of life as much as for life itself. We must be principled. We must be firm. We must recognize value and stick to our guns. Nothing can deter us from what is right, however attractive it might be, because in the end, a great person like Avram Avinu is someone who can be who they are and what they want to be, no matter what life throws at them. To truly appreciate the magnitude of Avram Avinu's final trial, we must contemplate the layers of Masiova's similar bonim inherent within. Avram's trials are the backdrop of Bnei Yisrael's narrative, the struggle for Eretz Yisrael, the importance of Harabais of Temple Mount, another site Avraham purchased, and the determination and fortitude required of us as his descendants to lay claim to our heritage. Eretz Yisrael may be ours, but it doesn't come to us on a platter. No way. We need to work hard to get it, and we need to work hard and endure pain to keep it. We need to carry the torch of Avraham Avinu's legacy. It gives us a profound appreciation for the formative trials that shape not only our individual lives, but the destiny of Am Yisrael. Let us forge onwards, fortified by the knowledge that indeed what happened to our forefathers was and remains a sign for us, their children. Now, let us turn to the profound concept of Hashkocha Protis, divine providence, through an intriguing episode in Chayesora. As already mentioned, we read about Avram Avinu's interaction with Ephraim the Hittite during his moment of deep personal sorrow as he sought to purchase a burial site for his beloved wife Sarah. There is an anomaly. The Torah describes Ephraim with the Hebrew verb yoshev, indicating that he was sitting among the people yet. The scriptural spelling allows for another interpretation suggesting he had just risen to a position of prominence. Rashi peels back the layers of this narrative to reveal a hidden significance. Ephraim had, on that very day, ascended to the role of leader, a transformation orchestrated by divine will to honor Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was an elevated great man. How, how could it be that he would have to deal with an ordinary real estate broker to buy the burial plot? So God orchestrated events so that Ephraim was the chieftain when Avraham dealt with him. Nice idea, right? Actually, is it? Why would Avraham Avinu, immersed in grief, concern himself with Ephraim's status when buying the burial plot? Why would God interject in mundane affairs of Hittite politics to ensure that Ephraim was the leader? Who cares? I believe that the answer lies deep inside the depths 
of divine providence, a concept that is often misunderstood. We commonly invoke Hashkocha Protis during life's monumental events, like the joyous union of marriage. But does this divine intervention pertain only to life-altering events, or does it extend to the trivial aspects of life, such as finding a seat on the bus or not getting caught in a traffic jam? Chazal compared divine providence to a shadow that mimics our every move. It is a reflection of our relationship with God. The more we incorporate God into our lives, the more God becomes an active participant in our journey. This principle is beautifully illustrated in Avraham's story. Irrespective of Avraham's own perceptions at that time, his closeness with God dictated that even the seemingly insignificant details were tenderly managed by God himself. Avram's life was a testament to a reality where God's involvement is not limited to grand gestures and state occasions, but that it is manifested in all facets of our existence. Let us return to the commentary of Rabbeinu Yoyna that I mentioned earlier. In his commentary on Pirkei Ovis, Perikei Gimel. Rabbeinu Yoyna delves into the ten trials by which God tested Avram Avinu. And while the majority of the Rishonim contend that Abraham's tenth and final trial was the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, as depicted in last week's parsha, Rabbeinu Yoyna presents an alternative view. He suggests that the real final test was Avram Avinu's ordeal in securing a burial site for his late wife Sarah. He comes back from Mount Moriah and he's confronted with Sarah's death. Despite previously presuming himself to be the rightful inheritor of the land of Canaan, Avram Avinu found himself engaged in negotiations with Ephraim, culminating in the purchase of a burial plot at a steep cost. This transaction, according to Rabbi Yoyna, stands as the ultimate test mentioned in Perkyovus, the tenth test. At first glance, the rationale behind Rabbeinu Yonah's interpretation is, at best, perplexing. The emotional and spiritual tribulations involved in burying one's spouse are undeniably profound, yet to suggest they eclipse the trial of the Akedah, the willingness to offer one's son as a sacrifice, seems incomprehensible. But Ravilio Desla in his remarkable work, Mikhtav Meliohu, explains that this episode was, indeed, Abraham's sternest challenge. He identifies two key elements of Avram Avinu's character that, when combined, rendered the purchase of Sarah's burial plot an extraordinary test of his moral and spiritual fortitude. To contextualize the situation, Abdesla invites us to consider the character of Ephraim to assist us in understanding who Ephraim was, let's use the analogy of an unscrupulous used car salesman, someone who embodies the low watermark of commercial integrity, willing to swindle customers at every turn if he can get away with it. It's totally natural for anyone to adopt a defensive stance against such a character, reciprocating deceit with deceit in a twisted form of justice. Ephraim was such a person, and had Avram dealt with him, giving him a taste of his own medicine, that would have been totally justified. But not Avram Avinu. He was the picture of propriety, 
amazing. Then there is the matter of stress and its effects on human behavior. We recognize different thresholds of stress from the mundane to the extreme, and we often permit it to justify lapses in our behavior or in other people's behavior. You came back home after a hard day at work, you lose your luggage in the airport, you have someone very sick or dying in your family. These are the kinds of moments that naturally challenge your civility, and you can end up behaving not quite at your best. And as a result, we typically forgive ourselves for any less than perfect behavior in such circumstances. Avram Avinu, in stark contrast, had endured the most harrowing of days. Imagine the relief mixed with emotional exhaustion following the near sacrifice of his son Yitzchak. And he had hardly had time to recover and he suddenly discovers that his wife Sarah has died, compounding his anguish. It was in this state of profound distress that he encountered Ephron and negotiated for a burial site. Despite the potential for discourtesy, Avram Avinu's behavior was impeccable. He maintained the highest standards of respect and honor, even when no one could have faulted him for acting otherwise. As Rav Desler observes, suffering does not entitle one to dispense suffering. This principle extends to all facets of life, where our personal trials and difficulties does not mean that we can treat others badly. Avram Avinu's unwavering adherence to this ethos, especially under dire circumstances and while interacting with someone of such questionable character, exemplified the ultimate trial of interpersonal conduct. The profound lesson here, which Rav Desla emphasizes, is the importance of maintaining respect and decency and dignity at all times, regardless of personal grievances or societal norms that may condone discourtesy. Even amid the confluence of immense personal distress and an encounter with a less than virtuous individual, Avraham Avinu's steadfast commitment to honor and dignity was, according to Rabbeinu Yoyna, the epitome of his trials, a testament to his extraordinary character and to the ethos we all strive to emulate. With that, we shall leave it. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.